Tonight, I'm going to ask you to think with me for a few moments from one of the most well-known passages in the Bible and uh, look at it afresh to Psalm 23, if you will. I'd like to share with you a few thoughts the Lord has given me this past few days and some blessings that have been mine in the reading of this particular passage that is so very well known. As I read Psalm 23 again over and over, I could not help but recognize that what the psalmist talks about here is the environment of a Christian. The environment of a Christian. Now, we hear a lot today about the environment, about the environment being polluted, and the environment this, and the environment that. And we've got some wackos as far as that goes in some of those areas who just simply have gone overboard about uh, the protection of the environment, uh, who stopped great moves in our country because of a little fish or a snail or a hoot owl, and uh, the progress and the well-being of many of the people in our country uh, just uh, have suffered as a result. But anyway, I believe certainly we'll do our part in taking care of the environment, I get aggravated every time I drive to church, not because I'm coming to church, but I see all kind of trash and junk thrown out in the out uh, by the highway over in the ditch. And every week I have to go out, and I'm sure some of you do if you live on the highway, I have to go out and pick up beer cans, Coca-Cola cans, cigarette cases, and a little bit of everything. I've learned, however, when I'm picking up beer cans, I always have a dark-colored bag, and I look both ways to see if cars are coming. I don't want anybody to come by and say, I passed the preacher's house, and he had a can of Budweiser in his hand. And if you ever hear that, uh, that's the reason you'll hear it. I'm trying to pick up junk that people throw out in the ditch and out of the yard, it just kind of aggravates me. But anyway, I believe we ought to do our best to have a clean environment. I'm all for clean air. I'm all for clean water. And I think all of us are uh, in a very sensible way. But yet, as I think about the environment, I'm thinking primarily about the Christian's uh, environment. Psalm 23 is a very personal psalm. If you'll count the number of times that David, that the psalmist, whom I believe is David, uses the personal pronoun, I or me, and sometimes mine, you'll count about 14 or 15 times in these six verses where that personal pronoun is used. It's very interesting to me and to realize that this is something that is very personal to the psalmist. I think you have heard the story I've repeated of a gathering of, uh, of the many people, business people and entertainment entertainers and so forth at a big conference. And uh, they asked that uh, uh, one, of the, one of the actors who had beautiful diction and just, I mean, knew how to speak to quote the 23rd Psalm. And he got up in front of the crowd and he quoted this beautiful 23rd Psalm and just did it ever so correctly. And people applauded when, they had, when he finished. And the man bowed in gratitude to their appreciation 
of his reciting the 23rd Psalm. And then they asked one dear elderly preacher to come and quote the same Psalm. The old servant of God, through many a battle he had gone, and through many a, a hard time and desperate time, he got up and began to quote the 23rd Psalm. And by the time he had finished, there's not a dry eye in the crowd. People were weeping as this man quoted the 23rd Psalm. The master ceremonies then came before the crowd, and he said, Our dear actor has quoted the psalm like a man who knew the psalm. But he said, Our preacher has quoted it like a man who knew the psalmist. There's a difference. There's a difference in just simply quoting the Bible and knowing the one who is the author of the Word of God. It makes all the difference in the world. Someone could quote John 3.16 and have no sense of that being personal to them. And they could quote that and it'd be ever so correct. But oh, when a spirit-filled Christian relates that truth of John 3.16 to an unsaved person, the Spirit of God drives that truth into the heart. And oh, how the Lord can use that to bring an awakening to the heart of an individual who hears it. Well, the 23rd Psalm. There are three things that I want you to recognize in this psalm. First of all, the psalmist becomes aware of his environment in the form of a, of a genuine recognition. So if you'd like to just remember the word recognition, he recognizes something. And I fear that many of us go through life and we fail to recognize. Now, uh, I'm a, a little keener observer of things than my wife is. Uh, somebody can move an object that I have put somewhere in the house and I know it's been moved. Uh, uh, all the family may say, well, I hadn't bothered when it's been moved. I know. I know where it was. Knew, knew that it's not, know that it's not in the same place. And yet, many of us go through life, we're not keen observers of the environment that we're in as a child of God. Now, let me talk to you a minute about what the psalmist recognized. He begins at verse 1 and he says, The Lord is my shepherd. Notice that personal pronoun again. The Lord is my shepherd. The word Lord is the, is the regular Hebrew word that is most often translated Jehovah. That is one of the names uh, that is given, the primary name that is given us in the scriptures in the word of God. Now the word Lord come as a combination actually of three Hebrew verb tenses. It's made up of three. It is made up of one Hebrew word that means he was. That's past tense. It also is made up of another Hebrew tense word that, that means simply to be or being. That's present tense. And then there's the third that gives us the 
the view of the future, and that is the word in the Hebrew language that means uh, he shall be or he will be. So when you put these three verbs in the Hebrew language in which the Old Testament is written, when you put them together, you come up with the word Jehovah, which simply means he is the God who was, who is, and who ever shall be. He is the everlasting God, the God who not only knows the past, but he is aware of the present, but he also knows the future. And we were singing that song just a moment ago. We don't know about tomorrow. We don't know what the future holds, but we know the one who holds the future. Therefore, we can rest confidently in him, knowing that his very purposes will be worked out as he is so designed, I don't care how many Osama bin Ladens there are in the world, I don't care how many germs, I don't care what happens, I want to tell you the purpose of God is still on course. Sometimes you'll read in the Old Testament, by the way, where the Lord chose a heathen nation to chastise the people of God. And I've been preaching for two decades or more. Many, many times I proclaim to people, if we do not repent, sincerely repent, and get right with God, then things are not going to continue in this country as they have. God, as a holy God, cannot let a nation, whatever nation that may be, get by by thumbing their nose at the Almighty. It just doesn't happen. And so uh, I'm simply saying that God knows the future and he knows where things are headed and he's he's bringing everything to shape uh, that he has designed. Well, look at this. The Lord, the psalmist says, is my shepherd. Notice that personal pronoun again. You see, it is not enough to own him as a shepherd. That would equate him with other founders of religions in the world. No, it is not enough to know him as a shepherd. It is not enough to own him as the shepherd. But yet we must own him as my shepherd. We must be able to say that. Can you say that? John Wesley wrote in his diary, uh, when uh, concerning a, uh, a, a Moravian brother in this country, and John Wesley came here. Wesley, by the way, is the founder of Methodism. He came to this country as a missionary to work among the Indians here in Georgia and the poor debtors, and we've still got a lot of them in our state, haven't we? But nonetheless, he came to work among the Indians, and one day he came upon this Moravian settlement and an old, uh, uh, one of the elders in that group, a Mr. Spangenberg, came to Wesley and he said, Mr. Wesley, I must ask you this. Do you know that Jesus Christ is your Savior? And John Wesley, in his diary, wrote, saying, I responded by saying, I know he is the Savior of the world. 
And Spangenberg responded and said, but do you know he died for you and that he is your Savior? Wesley penned in his diary these, uh, uh, these words, and he said, I answered him, yes, but my heart was greatly disturbed. It was not long after that when Wesley returned to England at Little Aldersgate Street Chapel in London where Wesley realized that he needed a personal Savior. His heart was strangely warmed and Wesley became as a result of that experience the flaming evangel that he was in his day and time. So there's a difference in knowing a shepherd and the shepherd but we must know him as my shepherd. The same progression is seen back in Exodus 12 where the Lord required of Israel that a lamb be slain. You remember the story. The death would, death would come through. The Lord would pass through. And only those who had blood of the sacrifice applied on the limbs above and on either sides of the doorpost. Only these would be spared from death. And so the Lord commanded that there be the sacrifice, the Passover lamb as we know it. But here's the progression. In Exodus 12 at verse number 3, you find the term a lamb. That they're to take a lamb, slay him, offer him as a sacrifice. And then it progresses into the next verse and talks about the lamb. First, it's a lamb. In verse 5 of Exodus 12, it is the lamb. And then in the following verse, verse 5, he talks about your lamb. In other words, what I'm saying about the shepherd, my shepherd. Is he your shepherd personally? You see, it is not enough for the shepherd to be your mom or dad's shepherd. It's not enough for him to be grandma's shepherd or grandpa's shepherd. But he must be our shepherd, my shepherd. Can you say then with a psalmist in recognition of this fact, of this environment, the Lord is our shepherd. We're the sheep. And here we're in the environment of the shepherd who watches over the sheep and our shepherd is the Lord Christ himself. Jesus taught that, did he not, in the Gospel of John. Oh, what thrill it is to read that our Lord, is the, our shepherd, knows his sheep and they know his voice. Another they will not follow, but they will follow that shepherd. How interesting. And so uh, here a recognition of the fact that the Lord is our shepherd. And then comes at the, at the following statement. He said, I shall not want. Not only do you have a recognition here as concerning our environment, but you have a reassurance from the Lord. He said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The Hebrew word that's rendered here in our good old English version of the scripture is the word want. The word translated want comes from the word corsair, corsair, pronounced in English. And it means to lack, to lack something. The shepherd, the psalmist is saying, the Lord my shepherd, I shall not lack anything. 
Again, the word also means to fail. In other words, he's saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I will not fail. Uh, success is for the person who is obedient to the shepherd. And when I say success, I'm not saying you'll get a million dollars in the mail. Uh, you may get some powder in the mail. But the whole story is, the Lord didn't promise material success, but he does say if we'll walk with him, it will prosper in our ways, and then we shall be successful. The word, of course, means to want something, to walk. It means to abate. You remember how the waters in Noah's day, the scripture said the waters were abated. In other words, they were, uh, they were lowered. They were going down. And this word means as well to uh, make lower or it means to decrease. See, hear what the psalmist is saying in this word. The Lord is my shepherd, I'll not fail. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be abated. There will be no decrease. <laughs> the only thing these decreases, we ourselves, and the Lord is increased. Now what John said, he, I must decrease, he must increase. The more we decrease, the more he's increased. The more men see less of us, the more they see of Christ. I like it myself, don't you? All right, yeah, I'm sorry. Not good, huh? All right, now make it good and, good and springy. <laughs> so the, the, we'll not want, we'll not decrease, we'll not fail, we'll not want. Now, let me ask you, look, just turn over about 10 Psalms, over to Psalm 34. Look at this. Psalm 34, and let's read, let's see, beginning at verse 8. Psalm 34 and verse 8. You got it? Here's what it says. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Watch. O fear the Lord, ye his saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good now, what we may determine good may not be the thing that the Lord defines as good. Many times we define as good our, uh, uh, some act of disobedience. Well, you know, this is good. We're going to do this. this is a good thing. When in reality it may not, if it accords with the Word of God, certainly it's good. And, and the Lord is, is good indeed, as the psalmist said. So here we're saying the same thing that reassures us that those who fear the Lord shall not want any good thing. Now, you remember a story, I know you do, the story of the prodigal. I understand Greg preached on that Sunday morning. The story of the prodigal in chapter 15 of Luke and down at verse 14. Well, after this young man had been so rebellious, disobedient, ran away from his father, went his own way. Finally, he winds up down in the hog pen and wanting uh, uh, to eat the pods and the, uh, the food of the swine. And the Bible says, and no man gave unto him, and he 
began to be in, you remember the next word? Want. Boy, he is lacking something. Here's a young man who was a failure. Why? He didn't fear God. And that's the whole point of the story. The young man goes his own way. Paul again talks about that supply of what we need over in 2 Corinthians. I'm not asking you to turn there. In chapter 9, verse 8 through 12. Good passage to read tonight. And then again, there's a third thing that comes to mind when I read this psalm. Not only that we are, that we are to recognize who's our shepherd, who's taking care of us. Not only to have that reassurance that as we fear him and walk with him and he is truly our shepherd and truly if he is the sheep are obedient to the shepherd. Understand that the only animal that just walks away for no reason at all is a sheep. A sheep is stupid. And that's the reason the Lord said of us, you're my sheep, I guess. And how stupid we are sometimes. Going our own way, ignoring God's truth, doing as we please instead of pleasing God in our life. But the third thing, and that is a reminder of the environment that we're in. Notice at verse 2, he says that beneath me are the green pastures. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. Now the grass is beneath us, lush, tender, a place to even lie down and rest, to be refreshed, to be resting. Then beneath us are the everlasting arms, the Bible tells us. He holds us in his hand. Beneath us, that's the environment we're in. Beneath us, God's supply, God's rest, God's care for us. And then he says that beside me are still waters. You know, still waters, that is, waters that are deep run most silently. An empty drum always sounds louder, you know. But those deep waters, you don't hear them so much, but they run deep. And beside me and beside you is the water that will quench our thirst in any situation in life. Christ alone can do that. Beside, beneath me then are the green pastures. Beside me are the still waters. Notice something else down here in verse number 5. Before me is the table that the Lord has prepared for me. And notice where he does it. In the presence of mine enemies. Why the Lord, he said, you may be facing enemies, but hey, who, who's going to eat if the enemy is knocking at the door? Only the person who has the shepherd, who knows him, who knows that he is caring for him, that he belongs to him. And the sheep down there with the shepherd watching over them, listen, wolves and lions can be up there in the edge of the forest peering down on those sheep, but they're not afraid. Why? Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. So before the psalmist is the table that the Lord has prepared for him. And then look at verse 6. Behind me is goodness and mercy. 
I mean, that, that just about covers it, doesn't it? But watch this. Beyond me is the house of the Lord. While he's beside me, while he's before me, while he is behind me, yet there is out in the future the house of the Lord where we will dwell forever. What an environment we live in. What a precious environment. Blesses us with his presence. Bedecks us with the anointing oil of his spirit. What environment is ours? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But let me just add a little word that came to me this week about the Lord this that is behind us. Goodness and mercy. Another term for our Lord is not. God is merciful. God is good. So the psalmist saith, mercy, goodness and mercy are behind me. Do you remember when Israel came out of Egypt? They were followed by Pharaoh's army. And they came and, and they were being led according to Exodus 13. They were being led by this pillar of fire by day and a pillar or a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. I found that interesting as I thought about it. You know what happens in the desert at nighttime? It gets cold. In the interest of the Lord had a pillar of fire at night. He kept them warm. And out in the desert, did you know what happens in the daytime? It gets hot. So he had a pillar of cloud by day. Doesn't the Lord know how to take care of his people? And indeed he does. And so the Lord, now over in Exodus, again, I remind you of this. Uh, there came a moment when that pillar moved from before the people of Israel. They're facing the water. The Lord led them up there. And all of a sudden, let me ask you to look at this. In, in Exodus, look in chapter 14. Exodus 14. We got a minute to do that, and I think it'll be blessed to do it. Look at Exodus 14 and verse 19. Now what's this? 19. And the angel of God which went before the camp of Israel removed and went behind them. And the see, before that pillar is in front of them, leading them. And the pillar of cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. And he came, and it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel, and it was a cloud and darkness to them, but it gave light by night to these, so that the one came not near the other at all. Now the interesting thing to me is this. Here is Israel, and all of a sudden, that cloud that's been leading them is gone. You ever feel like God just left you? No, don't be too religious. I felt those times. I felt God just gone. Man, this situation here I'm facing, this condition, where is God? You know what the Lord seems to say? Look behind you. Just look behind you. you know, we, we fail to look behind us. We're looking out here and wanting God to show up in a big pillar of fire or a big pillar that's a cloud, and we want all that, and that is going to tell us God is there. But you see, sometimes 
the Lord removed that presence. But when you realize, no, he is removed from the front, he's behind. Now, there's a word in the Bible that's spelled R-E-R-E-W-A-R-D. Uh, you remember when in Joshua, the children of Israel were marching around the walls of Jericho. Uh, the armed men went in front, the big soldiers. The, the, uh, uh, the priests followed them, if I remember the order correctly. And then came the Ark of the Covenant. The ark that was the symbol of the very presence of God, but was indeed a symbol of and was the word of God. Now, the Bible said, and the real word, R-E-R, R-E-R-E-W-A-R-D. That's a, not a very common word. The real word came behind them. Now, I used to look at that, and it means in this place it means those who come behind uh, and I used to think all the time well that's just the rest of the people and I used to define the word rearward as the rest of the people but I found something interesting over in Isaiah 52 and verse 12 Isaiah 52 and verse 12 and the statement is this remember this verse Isaiah 52 verse 12 the God of Israel will be your rearward. Now look at that again. The God of Israel shall be your rearward. And then again in the same book of Isaiah, chapter 58 this time in verse 8. Chapter 58, look at this verse. Boy, this is precious to me. Chapter 58 in verse 8, and the verse declares, the glory, the glory of the Lord shall be your rearward. Now, if you were to look this word up in the average dictionary, English dictionary, you wouldn't find the definition. But in the unabridged dictionary, one of those big old things about this thing takes a forklift to, you know, get it up on the tape and open it up. The word rearward means rear guards. <laughs> The Lord God of Israel will be your rear guard. Now, you know what Israel is, you know what had happened to them? Army of Pharaoh was behind them. And uh, the Lord said, I'll be behind you. I'm the rear guard. You see, the devil often tries to attack the child of God, not from the front, but from the rear. In any military operation, you always have a rear guard. And that's for the purpose of keeping the enemy from bringing up a sneak attack. Now the devil, listen, he'll he'll try to have a he'll try to do one of those sneak attacks on you. But if you're fearing God, if you're loving God, obedient to Him, the Lord said, "I'll be your rear guard. I'll take care of you." So the psalmist has said, "Beside near still water." Above, beyond me is the table the Lord prepared for me. And yet way out beyond me is the house of the Lord where I'm headed. Thank God for this blessed, precious psalm that has blessed and strengthened the lives of 
so many of God's people. You know, I've been reading the Bible for over 50 years, and I come back and read some of these these passages like this that, you know, I've read, I guess, hundreds of times. And then you come back and read again, and if you'll just open your heart, the Holy Spirit can teach you some things that you really thought you'd already dug out everything that was in there. Brother, our, our Bible teacher in Sunday school, I guarantee he testified to this. I mean, you just go back and the Lord just got, I mean, the, the gold mine of the scripture is never depleted. You go back and you'll find a nugget here and one over there. Thank God for the environment that you and I have as born-again Christians. Let's stand together.